From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, intraoperative anterior segment OCT and clinical IOL optics at the ASCRS annual meeting in San Diego. I could just flip a coin and you got about a 50-50 shot of landing within a half a diopter of your intended target. If you look at the best peer-reviewed literature, you've got a 55% chance of hitting a half a diopter. First this. I know many of the audience of a scene from here also watch my live conference interviews on ewreplay.org. These brief video programs highlight the most important news from major ophthalmology meetings and number in the hundreds every year. But if you haven't watched ewreplay.org recently, you've got to check it out. iWorld Replay has really upped its game with super video production and fantastic content. ewreplay.org. We've just renovated and we'd love to have you over. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2019 annual meeting of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery in San Diego. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from George Waring IV on the correlation between optical biometry and intraoperative anterior segment OCT, and from Claudia Perez-Straziota on clinical optics in cataract surgery. This was the first day we were filming in the new iWorld studio, and my enthusiasm was a little bit unrestrained. We have George Waring IV, whom I love speaking with. I know that you're going to teach me a lot today, and I can't wait to George, we're going to be talking about a, a, a new technology, new implementation of a technology, which is anterior segment OCT, but it's intraoperative anterior segment OCT. So describe for me what this technology is and what its role is. And then you, you're giving a wonderful talk, very eager for, on comparing the information that we gather from intraoperative anterior segment OCT with uh, traditional preoperative biometry. So take it away. Well, first off, Josh, uh, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. This is really exciting. We love the new format. We just couldn't be happier for you all. So congratulations. Um, you know, we're learning more and more about image-guided surgery. And this is something that we now have access to advanced tools like OCT with pre-op information, but we can also use this intraoperatively. And we set out to look at 600 consecutive eyes with intraoperative OCT during cataract surgery. So my colleagues, uh, Dr. Caroline Ihosha, Dr. Luisa uh, Govea, and uh, Dr. George Haddad, uh, two of our fellows, and, and uh, my um, partner, Dr. Rocha, looked at this biometrically. And essentially, we're trying to figure out is there something there or not that we can actually utilize to help predictively and help us really truly understand uh, the, the, the landscape of biometry as it relates to intraoperative factors. So what am I talking about? Let's just think of some of the main things that we evaluated. 600 eyes consecutive intraoperative OCT for cataract surgery. So we evaluated something called uh, um, um, 
LMP, all right, which is essentially the lens meridian position, or the closest surrogate we have to this elusive effective lens position. And at the end of the day, Josh, that's what this is all about. It's trying to predict effective lens position. And now we potentially have the intraoperative technology to do that. So what we want to do is to say, okay, well, how does that correlate to things like anterior chamber depth or axial length? Likewise, how does lens thickness correlate with these other parameters? We think we know, but do we really? So ever since we started doing intraoperative imaging, we realized that when we always thought these large eyes would have big capsules, and that's why you might have rotation of toric lenses more often, we were not observing that at all. In fact, in many cases, it was the opposite. The large eyes had smaller capsules, huh. and small eyes had larger capsules. So that's one of the reasons we set out to do this. And sure enough, when we studied it, the 600 eyes was essentially zero correlation between lens thickness and axial length. So I have hypothesized that a potential rotation may not be from a large bag and a large eye. It may be the actual uh, force of a thin-walled sclera and thin-walled um, uh, cornea, perhaps, and that is more likely to have a t almost like a, a, a torque um, with a piston-like effect that allows a rotation. That's not, really not, interesting. Not a large capsule, and that's a hypothesis, but we have the data now to support it. Furthermore, um, there was a massive variation in lens thickness, basically 100% uh, variation, meaning we went from three millimeters thickness to six millimeters thickness. So total variation there. And then in terms of the highlights of correlation, we found a strong correlation with lens thickness and anterior chamber depth, lens meridian position and anterior chamber depth. So both of those were strongly correlated, but they were weakly correlated with axial length. So we really think that there's something there. So Dr. Gueva recently, and she's presenting this uh, here at, at uh, ASCRS, went and looked at post-operative data with swept source o OCT, and it turns out that post-operative lens meridian position where the IOL ended up correlates strongly with pre-operative crystalline lens lens meridian position. So all of a sudden, we have a direct correlation that we can, we can count on pre to post with essentially what is effective lens position. And, and we've, we've gone one step further and we've described a new metric called the equatorial plane position, which is essentially a chord between the, the lens meridian position and the anterior capsule. So we're looking at advanced, um, uh, how this may fit into advanced formula that will actually take intraoperative information and perhaps, perhaps help us understand how we can predict where the lens is gonna end up. This is fascinating, fascinating stuff. Let me, let me ask you this. So the, the study is, to, I, I just want to be clear, and then I've got a few follow-up questions. The, 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 the study is to use the intraoperative anterior segment OCT to gather data th that you are then, so it's not that, that you are adjusting your, uh, your lens calculations on the fly currently. With, uh, with anterior segment OCT, you're using it to um, give you information about the import of the different uh, preoperative biometric characteristics with the idea of coming up with a number one, better understanding, and number two, uh, better lens calculations. Precisely. You know, we, we, we thought for years 
um, that you know one size doesn't fit all. And and uh, you know we we actually studied this probably about 15 years ago and wrote a, a big white paper for industry trying to figure out intraoperative lens capsule volume measurements because we knew that it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it'd be like having a one-size shoe yeah. uh, for, for all the different size feet. It just doesn't make sense. And, and we have these concerns about rotation. We have these concerns about um, uh, uh, our outcomes being a, essentially we expect a half a diopter in terms of our intended refractive target with average cataract surgery. That's what we're going for. But guess what? I could just flip a coin and you got about a 50-50 shot of landing within a half a diopter of your intended target. If you look at the best peer-reviewed literature, you've got a 55% chance of hitting a half a diopter. And that's all related to effective lens position and how little, how little we really understand about some of this dogma about lens volume, for example. I mean, how many people here do you think say, well, lenses rotate in highly myopic eyes because those capsules are bigger, those big old capsules. We hear it all right. day long. Yeah. We found that not to be the case. Yeah, fascinating. So um, let me ask this then. Um, did, did you find any correlation between the preoperative meridian tilt and the postoperative cylinder? Uh, that's a great question. We have not looked at that yet. However, uh, Mitch Weikert has looked at that, and he has found that. And that's a very important um, uh, um, finding, actually. Excellent question. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would be the, not the equivalent, it would be an astigmatism of oblique incidents. Um, now, uh, one, one last question, I mean, frankly, First of all, it's a fascinating topic. Second of all, I'm a geek, and I could talk about this for, 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 the, for the whole day with uh, joy. Um, um, so what, what, what I'd like to know is in the post-operative effective lens position studies that you've done to sort of follow this, this, this up, how far post-operatively were those, those patients? And the reason that, that, that I ask, and it's turning out to be a really clinically important question, is, is that Doug Koch has, uh, has shown that there can be um, a clinically important movement of the intraocular lens even a few months after, after surgery. And that kind of throws some cold water on the idea of doing intraoperative aberrometry to determine the lens position because all that that's telling you is the lens position while you're sitting there in the OR may not reflect what's going to be the case for that patient three, six months out. Yeah, excellent point and uh, very well received. I couldn't agree more. So we looked at this at a month and, and, and three months. And um, I 100% agree with Doug because, you know, we're, we're, we're using second eyes to kind of calibrate personalization of perhaps a second style lens based on how somebody did with the first lens. But we just, we really don't think that that is clinically meaningful because of exactly what Doug has, uh, has stated, that you're healing factors have not occurred yet, so you really don't know where the lens is going to end up. And that's whether it's anterior, posterior, oblique, like you mentioned, and we know that a, a millimeter can have a 2.7 diopter effect, right? That's massive right. with just a millimeter the anterior tiny uh, 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 movement. So that's, you know, we, we're, we're, we ran a beautiful session yesterday um, on post-operative lens adjustability, and it was a heated debate that was just wonderful about, well, we're only 
we're only so good and we can do better, but ultimately we may need to have an answer afterwards because yeah. of some uh, not being able to truly predict ELP because of the, some of these things. And not until we can truly eradicate lens epithelial, equator uh, epithelial cells, primary posterior capsulotomy, and some of these other factors, will we, will we truly be able to answer some of these questions. Yes, absolutely, absolutely fascinating stuff. George, I, 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 I can't begin to thank you for, for, for bringing this wonderful topic to us. Uh, and I, I can't think of anyone or any topic that would have been a, 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 a better debut uh, for uh, our, our new studio. Uh, George, I want to thank you very, very much for, for sharing this with us, for being so generous with your time. And I want to thank you, our audience, for participating in this live debut of uh, our new iWorld studio. Thank you, Josh. The honor was mine. Welcome to this iWorld live event. I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm even more happy that I'm with Claudia Perez. Claudia, we're talking about an, an, an exciting topic here, uh, the most exciting topic. There's nothing more exciting than optics. I, everyone would agree with me. I would. Uh, yes. So, so I, I, this is going to be a long conversation. You're not going to talk for the rest of the day. No. We're going to be talking about optics in the context of multifocal IOLs. And truth be told, we really could spend most of the day talking about just that one subject. This is true. So let's, first of all, uh, let, so let, let's narrow things down to just, uh, just a few topics. I have patients who come in for, uh, who want multifocal IOLs. And uh, I have to tell them, you are already multifocal because you've got a multifocal cornea and a right. multifocal IOL is not going to mix with that. Right. Tell me, we were, we were talking off camera, you, you and I are obviously twins. Uh, what, 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 how does this play in? I think it's very important to understand um, to some degree uh, optics, specifically higher aberrations and, and correlate with our corneal topographic findings as well. Um, I think that we underestimate the uh, repercussion of an irregular or multifocal rather cornea, which derives from an irregular topography in the majority of cases. Um, and I, I cannot emphasize enough, and I hope that it is obvious at this point how important it is to have a topographer in our office when we're doing premium IOLs. Ideally, we have aberrometry as well, but at least a topography could allow us to sort of extrapolate what consequences those topographic findings are going to have. And I do tell the patient something similar. I say, look, you, your cornea is irregular and has different foci of, point, point of foci that already will cause enough distortion to then overlap or underlap rather a, an, an IOL that has a multifocality as well, and it's going to be too confusing because it's going to direct rays of light pretty, pretty much, rays of light pretty much everywhere in your retina. And so, you know, I think that when you explain that to patients, they're actually grateful of being discouraged for the right reasons about this premium technology. Everybody feels that they should have the premium technology, but not everybody is a good candidate for it. And and. There's nothing worse than a, an unhappy premium IOL patient because we feel really unhappy and dissatisfied with the outcomes of our efforts. So I think it's very important to sort of be able to correlate these findings in topography and aberrometry to then counsel our patient appropriately. If, if I have one crusade 
Uh, <laughs> it, it, I have a it lot. Is, you know, uh, it, 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 it is to uh, convince uh, anyone who does premium IOLs that they have to be adept at reading modulation transfer function groups. Okay, that's a conversation for a, for a different day, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, but to put things in, in simpler, more tangible terms, um, I think the way to view it is, is this, is, is that there's a cost to implanting a multifocal. There, there, there's a cost for a multifocal outcome, and I'm not talking about money. There's a cost right. to visual quality. I okay? always say that, yes. There is a debt that has to be paid, and I think that people starting out with irregular corneas are starting out with less money with which to pay <laughs> that uh, debt. Yes. Um, so, uh, let's, I know, I'm <clears throat> getting a little choked up at this topic, you understand. I it's understand. very, very meaningful to me. <laughs> to me as well. Um, you brought up uh, off, off camera too another interesting point. All of our intraocular lenses have optical centers. Usually, if the optical center is a little bit off, it's not a big deal. Right. With multifocal lenses, that's different, not right. only because of the centration of echelettes or rings or whatever mm -hmm. branding it is that the, that the lens has, but because often with the designs, the central power is different Correct. from the power central power, and we need to keep things centered. Now, definitely, that's more easily said than done. How do you assure centration with your lenses surgically? I use the Perkins reflex. I don't use the pupil. I think that's a, that's a mistake, in my opinion, because it, you can have variations in the pupil centration. When you have a dilated pupil, it's a little harder to sort of assess and all of that. So I use the Perkins reflex. That's one of the reasons, among others, why I ask my anesthesiologist or anesthetist to try to sedate the patient in a way that they still can understand and follow commands without, you know, much trouble. Because I, I ask the patient to look straight at the light. One thing I started doing uh, recently I took, I, I went under the microscope in the OR and took a picture of the, the lights. First of all, I got to see it myself for the first time. I'd never seen it, obviously. And so, but in the pre-op area, I showed the patient this image and I say, But oh, that's so clever. This is, this is what you're going to see. So when they are mildly sedated, they still saw this in their conscious, non-sedated state. They have a recollection, and so they look straight. There's three lights. You should. Everybody should get under the microscope and start looking at their microscope and see, because we cannot tell someone to do something that we don't. We haven't done ourselves in in, a, in an eloquent way. So you know, I show them and say, look straight into those three lights, and that's where you're gonna be centrated. And and I explain the importance. You know, everybody has to take their part in this process, and your cooperation is your part. So. You lay down, smile, look pretty, look straight ahead, and I'll do the rest. <laughs> so that, 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 that's, a, that's a wonderful, wonderful point. So, um, and, and I, I want to repeat some of the things that, 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 you, that you just said, emphasize them, you said them beautifully. It's not that I'm going to say them any more <laughs> nicely. Um, it, it, it is the case with many, many patients that the, um, the the center of the pupil is different when the patient is not dilated and using the uh, center of, a, of the pupil for centration is a bad guide. Yep. Um, 
using the Purkinje image is very, very helpful in a lot of ways when we want to approximate what the visual axis is. Uh, some, some caveats. Number one, as you said, the patient has to be with it and has to be able to, to fixate. But the second thing, and this is a, a caveat for all of the cataract surgeons out there, you need to figure out which of the light sources is coaxial because you need them focused in on the coaxial light source, not a light source that's right. not coaxial. You defeat the whole purpose. And that's for a lot of microscopes, that's a setting. You can turn down the non-coaxial light source and, as so you say, you get it underneath and one. see what's going on. Right. Um, but I have a, a question here, uh, and I don't know what the, what the answer is to, to, the, to this question. Do you think that the intraocular lens centers where you put it, or is it going to center about the geometry of the capsular bag, whatever once, that is, and, and our right, up. and our lesson, and our our work is is just moot. It would be interested to look interesting to look into that because I've thought about this, especially in long eyes, and not only with the multifocal eye with uh, IOL, but with also with the torix. You know, obviously their bag is has a different different configuration in terms of what your final effective lens position is going to be. And I, I really, to be completely honest, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it would be interesting to look into. Claudia, this is, this is wonderful. I feel that I've met a, a, a kindred spirit here. <laughs> um, a, 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 and uh, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed this, this, this conversation. I hope very much that you have enjoyed this, this conversation as much as, as I have, and I hope that you realize that you have some homework that you have to do here if you're implanting uh, multifocal lenses. And in truth, as there are different lens options going forward, the only way that you're going to be able to, to compare them is with these sort of topics that Claudia has just brought, yeah. brought, brought up. I look forward to speaking with you many more times because there's Likewise. so much more that this we can cover. This is true. I still, I'm thinking of all the things we didn't no, cover. No, it's marvelous. <laughs> and I want to thank you for joining us for this iWorld Live event. George Waring is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Director of Refractive Surgery at the Storm Eye Institute at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. Claudia Perez-Straziota has recently relocated to Cleveland, Ohio. Ask questions of Dr. Waring, Dr. Perez, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.